I invite the rest of you who are not being dismissed to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we are continuing this series that we've been going through, um, talking about how the gospel transforms us. And, and not just transforms us, we've spent basically the entire month of June talking about what the gospel should mean to us individually, what it means that we can daily preach ourselves the gospel, fall in awe and be humbled by what God did for you and for me in giving His Son. But every morning we start off just being in, in awe of what God has provided for us. But now we're going through more individually. Two weeks ago, um, I talked about how Jesus transforms our mind and what it means to have the mind of Christ, that that's really where we start from. Last week, we were so honored to have David Kaya here uh, from South Sudan, our our international partner uh, from Empower One. And it is always, and if you were here, and I'm very sorry if you weren't, 10 minutes in, his mic cut out and we lost the recording of it forever. It was, to me, crushingly convicting. And I had several people as they were leaving saying, thanks for that bucket of conviction tonight. It's amazing how our view of life changes when we hear someone who has lost many friends for the sake of the gospel. Uh, To hear the story of what it means to look around in the five different countries that they operate in and, and others that they can't name that they are beginning to minister in. The story told of the man who says, I know Jesus. I know I've been forgiven. And that was the entirety of his theological knowledge of God. And that alone can get him killed. And he said, it's okay. I know Jesus. I know what it is to be loved now. And David talked about how the gospel transforms our eyes to see people as as Jesus sees people. It was convicting and because... I don't have to leave Old Trolley Road very much. Like, I am basically on Old Trolley Road. Sometimes I'll venture all the way to Bacon's Bridge or Dorchester or Main Street, but I don't really drive that much. But the amount of people who are in my neighborhood, the amount of people, neighborhoods, and apartment complexes I pass without leaving Old Trolley Road, asking myself, do I see every single one of those houses? Do I see the other cars on the road as people who need Jesus, who are calling out? who are desperately trying to find happiness, joy, peace, forgiveness? Do I see them the way that Jesus does? So tonight we're kind of doing a continuation on that, continuing to talk about how Jesus uh, transforms our eyes, as we're in uh, Romans chapter 12, talking about how do we have our, our bodies and everything about us transformed into that of being like Christ. But tonight I want to ask the question, how do we see other believers like Jesus sees them. So last week, how do we see people that don't know Christ? How do we see them like Jesus sees them? But now, how do we view each other? And not just each other, but as you notice, driving down Old Trolley Road, there's a bunch of churches. How do we view other people as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we get hung up on titles, denominations, um, whatever, church names, And does that put a border between how we love each other? 
Are there borders, there are walls, or barriers that we have put up between each other here when we gather together? And so that's what we're going to be focusing on this evening. But I want to invite you again to Romans chapter 12. We've mentioned this before, and uh, my goal is by the end of the summer, you have Romans 12, 1 and 2 memorized. Uh, by the way, when we, uh, David Kyatt asked us, what do you want me to preach on? And, and Will's been in communication, so Will told him, how do you see people like Jesus sees them? And then he got up and kind of made a joke about, well, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to do whatever I want anyways. Um, but then he t- turned to Romans 12, 1 and 2. <laughs> we did not tell him to do that. It happened to be the passage that we've been in, and that's where he went. Then we spent time in Colossians 3. Um, but Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a, the, these two verses are a summary of the previous 11 chapters in Romans. Uh, and now Paul is presenting this, as I've mentioned before. Uh, the book of Romans is this beautiful, uh, uh, Paul is a lawyer, and this is a beautiful argument that he has put together. I know law schools that have used the book of Romans as how to put together an a argument or a case. And so now here he is summarizing the first 11 chapters and all that God has done for Gentiles and Jews and what it means and all of these incredible things. And he starts off verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Holy is set apart, set apart and, and falling in awe, pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. In today's English, that is just common sense. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And it's this picture as he is presenting this case, he's now saying, in view of God's mercy, in view of all the stuff that I've just described of what God has done and provided for you, it is just common sense that everything you are, everything you have, everything you hope to be is turned over to God's hands. And as you start to live in that way, set apart, holy, and pleasing, seeking to honor God above all else, then you will know what God's will is. What we like to do is say, God, here's what I'm going to do. And I think it's important you know my will and that you bless me in it. We like to find out We like options. Even when we look up GPS and it gives us three options, we still want to be in charge of which option we take. One minute difference, but I bet I can beat it. That's a shortcut. And oftentimes we do the same with God. God, here's the way I'm going to go. And I want you to come along for the ride. And then we're like, I just don't know what God has me to do. Because when we start to live for ourselves, we're telling God what we want to do. But the, the path that Paul is laying out here is, no, you go do this. You, you sacrifice you, everything that you are and talents, abilities, gifts, resources, whatever it is, you give that to God. And as you live that way, he will continue to direct your path. Uh, verses 3 down through 8, we will be in next week. Uh, but that is a picture of Paul saying, so here's what this looks like. As you live sacrificially, these verses, 3, for, three through 8 are, it should be done in, in humble service to the body of Christ. This should be played out in how you are associated, your relationship with the local body of believers that you call a church, both as, a, as the big church, the universal church, but also in how does this play out where you are in your local congregation. That's next week. 
Then, starting in verse 9 through the rest of the chapter, he's saying, but also when you live sacrificially, this is what you do individually. Yes, it starts as being a part of the body of Christ, and, and everybody has these different, bo- or different parts of the body that are so important in how we, we go along together. But also when we get to verse 9, and my focus tonight, uh, you can read through 9 through 21, we're going to hit on it, but I just want to read verses 9 and 10, and that's where our focus is going to be this evening. Paul writes, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, 1600s, Uh, He wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruit, and he's talking about Romans 12. He says, having this kind of love means that we will be more concerned about the state of the church and the souls of men than we are about our own well-being. But our culture has this completely twisted around. Our culture tells us, take care of yourself. Look out for number one because nobody else will. Like, you make sure you're good, right? This isn't a new concept. When we were back in the Old Testament, we were going through Ezra and Nehemiah. We spent time in the book of Habakkuk where he says, hey, that's great. Your houses look pretty. You got paneling in your houses. God's temple is a mess. It hasn't even started to be rebuilt yet. But you're taking care of yourself. You're getting yourself all situated and then... He keeps saying, yeah, and then once my house is where I want to be, then I'll take care of God's house. But today, that's what we still do. We take care of ourselves first. Hey, you got to look out for you. You got to watch your six. Always be looking out. And the, and the ones that you like, like, and your family, your significant other, your kids, like, look out for them first because you deserve it. You deserve the best. America, you deserve what you can get. Everything that you can get, get it now. You deserve it. You deserve simply the best. But then, take care of people who can do stuff for you. That's the next priority, right? Then, hey, if you can do stuff for me, then I'm going to look out for you as well. If you have something that I can use or, or I like you, we're very similar, I don't have to step out of my comfort zone to spend time with you, you're next on my priority list. That's what's important. Uh, if you're not, I'm going to label you as toxic, and I can no longer have any kind of time with you. Um, then, <laughs> then if you have time, try to attend church if you get a chance. And be nice to those weirdos, because they are weirdos. The truth is, we are weirdos. I, uh, I asked Maureen permission for this, but Maureen on time, uh, when Maureen had just started coming to church. She would just moved here from Myrtle Beach. She'd been helping out uh, at the different grocery giveaways. I think she'd been at two or three at that point. And, um, and Maureen, if you've never worked at a grocery giveaway, Maureen is one of the first people there, one of the last people to leave. Um, she works incredibly hard. Um, it is just such a, a blessing to have Maureen. And so after we were kind of coming to a close at the last grocery giveaway, and I said, uh, or this is just this is months ago now, but when she'd only been here, it was like her third grocery giveaway, and I said, 
Maureen, I just have to say, I have loved having you here. I've loved having you attend church. And Maureen said one of the best compliments, in my opinion, and I've told this to many people that I've ever gotten. She said, well, you're a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> She's like, and so am I. And I finally feel at home somewhere. And it's true. We are a bunch of weirdos. But often when we go to church, we kind of become hosts of our own church critique show afterwards. Have you ever noticed that? I've personally never done that as a pastor's kid who's grown up in church. That's a lie. That's all I've done my entire life. But we leave church and we're like, well, you know what I didn't like? And you know how when you watch a cooking show, like you watch cooking shows all the time, especially if you're on a diet, you tend to watch cooking shows a lot more than normal. And you're like, hmm. And then you go out to a restaurant and then you feel like you have to tell the people near you, like, I didn't like the, I thought the bread was a little, like, frozen-y, like, and like all of a sudden you're telling people your opinion on your food. No one's asked you about it, but you feel like you have to tell them, you're like, yeah, this, this is McDonald's. Don't expect high-quality homemade bread at McDonald's. But we do the same thing when we go to church. We become our, our own hosts of church critique shows, and we start to go through, well, this is what I didn't like. You know why you don't always like stuff at church? Because we're weirdos. Think about it. We are people who have admitted that we need help, that we are broken. And then we come together as a group of broken people who, who need help, who understand that they need forgiveness, who are seeking of some, some type of community, and we can come together and experience those things. A church should be a haven of rest. It should be a, a respite for, for those who during the week are living for God and are experiencing all this spiritual warfare, experiencing tough times at work or at home or, or with family members and you name it. But when they walk into a gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ, they should have this feeling of being cared for a place that we can go and be loved, a place that we can go and, and feel involved and a part of and a, and a piece of community. And when we experience anything other than that, just know that is nothing new. I believe that the reason when you start to look up uh, loving one another, the one another passages as they're called. I think there's like 61, 62, a couple of them are greet one another with a holy kiss, so not everybody counts those. But when we are to love one another with sincere love, that we treat each other with kindness and, and love, it's told over and over and over again the amount of times that it is written in the New Testament because I believe the same problem existed then as it does now is we come together of a group of people that outside of a church we would never hang out with. A lot of you, I'm not somebody that you would be drawn to if we met outside of church walls, especially if we were watching a sporting event. But because of Christ and the love that He provides, we now have the opportunity to live that out with each other. And again, this is not new. Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan minister in the 1600s, he wrote, It is sad that saints should have many eyes to behold one another's infirmities and not one eye to see each other's graces. That brings us back to verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. 
hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. We're just going to read through the rest of the chapter, actually. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Obviously, there is a lot in that passage. We're going to focus on three different things, and I'm going to move quickly. Number one, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. This is some homework I'm going to give you. Read 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we, we often hear it read, I've read it at weddings, and we think, what a wonderful passage for a marriage. No, that's a passage for everybody in this room, how we're to treat each other. That is how we are to treat each other's children. That is how we are to treat anyone that we call a brother and sister in Christ. And I, a, a wonderful book that I cannot recommend enough called Maximum Impact by Wayne Mack. I have a copy in my office if you're curious what it looks like. I'm not going to let you borrow it because I use it too often. Maximum Impact by Wayne Mack is a deep dive into 1 Corinthians 13 and how this plays out at the end of every chapter. He has like a page and a half of questions for you to walk through. It is awesome. But love must be sincere. What that means is do not be fake. Be real. And in order to have a real love, a sincere love, it's going to take hard work. It's nothing that you can do. It's only what the Holy Spirit can do through you as He transforms you. But you cannot be fake. You have to be real. You have to be honest and open with other people. Hey, it was hard to love you last week, Don. Here's why. That's not true about Don. Number two, be devoted to one another in love. Not be devoted to one another because you're obligated to do it. Be devoted to one another because it's what everybody tells you to do. Be devoted to one another because, well, how are you going to appear if you don't? It's when you have this sincere love that can only come when we humbly understand what God has done for us, and now we have the opportunity to live that out for other people, then we can actually be devoted to one another in love. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus is taught looking at his disciples, and what he's saying to his disciples, he's saying to anyone that would follow him, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Remember, his disciples are constantly trying to figure out who's higher up, Who's at the right hand? Who's at the left hand? They're always trying to get uh, in the good graces of Jesus. And what he says is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love 
one another. Why? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the past, we've spent time talking about the disciples and their backgrounds, where they came from, specifically Matthew, who's a tax collector, hated by Jews. And he's saying, hey, by the way, the way that you guys treat each other is going to demonstrate what kind of love I am showing you to the world. Oftentimes, we leave church. Now, I know none of this happens here. I'm just telling you what I've seen some other places. And then the next day, not here, of course, you'd have to wait till Monday, you go to work, and then you start to be like, ugh, church this weekend. Let me tell you about this guy at church. Or, man, I was so offended by this. Or this nursery worker didn't do this. Or, and we start telling people, and this is like, well, let me tell you about my church, blah, blah, blah. And then by the time you get to Thursday, Friday, you're feeling a little guilty because you're starting to remember some pieces of the message, and you go up to a coworker, like, hey, you should really come to church with me this weekend. Like, why would I do that? All week long, all of you church people have been talking about what you don't like about your church, and now you want me to... I, there's enough things in life I don't like. I don't need to add something to it. And Jesus is saying, and they will know that you are my disciples by how you treat each other, even when those other people aren't around. How you demonstrate love to your brother and sister in Christ when they're not there will be telling if you're truly devoted to one another in love. So how do we treat each other? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 4, um, you've heard Ephesians 4.29. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 4.25. Why? Because there's a therefore there, and I always go back there. So as he's giving them instructions for how to live to the church in Ephesus, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, and they, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be devoted to one another in love. Number three, honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. We were just in Philippians a couple weeks ago, Philippians 2, verse 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So how do you honor each other? That's what the rest of chapter 12 is a description of. Forgiving, not paying back, not being conceited, not demonstrating pride, inviting people into your home, treating them like they are an incredible guest of honor that you can't believe that they would be there in your presence, you of such lowliness. 
How do we honor each other? So, how do we become an encourager out of sincere love? How do we encourage each other? And I was kind of watching at the beginning, looking around, realizing that uh, I think just about everybody here that I know of kind of grew up in church. Am I correct, most of you? If you have not, like, you have some church experience, you've been to uh, churches that aren't this church before. So the chances are you've heard several of the verses, and I didn't use basically the entire book of First John. I didn't use anything in Hebrews. I didn't use any of the verses that you've probably heard about. And I was really struggling with, man, the majority of people have heard these verses so many times. How do we say, how do you apply this to your life? How do you make an application out of something uh, that if you spend any time in church, you've heard before? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, back when we were going through the Lord's Prayer, uh, we were talking about how do we want to do this. And I was like, well, what if we broke it up? And we did this section, and then we'd sing a song. And we did this section, and then we'd sing a song. And, then, and it was kind of funny because all of us were like, can we do this? Will the board of church messages, will we be grounded? I don't know how this works. Like, yeah, I guess we can. Let's try it. And we learned from that one. We've changed it a little bit. So I was thinking, what can we do different that maybe you've never had an opportunity to do before? Maybe it's something that, as an application, you've been told, do this, and then you leave the doors, and all of a sudden the week happens, and you're back at church again. So we're going to do it tonight. So I'm so glad that you're asked. I have um, three different activities we're going to do this evening. Sorry, there's no coloring or crayons. Uh, And then the fourth one is a take-home practice. It is a take-home opportunity, let's say. Um, So number one, if I could have my people... Uh, We are going to hand out two note cards and two envelopes, and there should be pens in the seats in front of you. This is not a test. Uh, You can just draw cartoons and throw it away. I will never know. Uh, But we're going to start as we are passing stuff out. Do you need more people? Will and Derek, do you mind jumping in? We're going to be passing out, again, two envelopes. Only use one for right now. We were going to do these when we walked in, but I knew that everybody would be doodling on them before I actually got to why we're going to use them. What we're going to do, encouragement practice number one. Do you need a pen, Randy? You got one? I realize there's no chair in front of you. I have an extra pen up here. We have extra pens if you need one. Just raise your hand. All right, here we go. Encouragement practice number one. You're going to take the first note card that you have, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to write a note to someone, and I don't say this as a joke because I know for myself included, some of the people that were the biggest spiritual encouragement to me are now with the Lord in heaven. So I want you to choose somebody who is alive, and I want you to write a note to someone who has played a role of spiritual encourager in your life. And I'm going to give you five minutes to do this. And I will sing a cappella in the meantime. Just kidding. So again, we're going to take five minutes, write a note of somebody who is alive. Maybe they live somewhere else. You complete this homework by delivering it to them, whether that means you have to put a name, an address, and a stamp on it. That's how this gets actually done. So that part is also somewhat of a take-home. But write a note to somebody who has been a spiritual encouragement in your life, anybody that is alive in the world. Here's about... 30 seconds left, but I'm going to go ahead and move to exercise number two. And as I explain it, that will finish your five minutes of the other one. 
But exercise number two, your second note card that you have. I want you to write a note to someone that is at church this evening, maybe not in this room, and I want you to write them a note telling them that you are thankful for them. If you have children, somebody in Hope Kids may be very deserving of a note from you thanking them. Um, but look around the guest service team or just somebody else here. Uh, if the first person you wrote to is already here, that's okay. You can write a second note to somebody else. But write a note of an encouraging, thankful letter to somebody here. We're going to take another five minutes starting now. While you're writing, I want to share another quote from you uh, from Roy Ortland. Roy Ortland is, uh, I don't know the man well, never met him. I've read some of his stuff. But he's a hero to me because he's a pastor who had three sons who were all pastors and loved the Lord. Um, I think one's a, a professor of theology. They've all written books. And as a pastor's kid myself, I don't really go always think, how did somebody have three sons who's a pastor and they all love the Lord? That's amazing. But Roy Orland wrote, I have never met anyone too encouraged, never once. I've never met anyone too encouraged, never once. I have about a minute left, but I'm going to go ahead and explain the next exercise. Uh, this was, I can't even remember where I first heard about doing this as something to put into a daily part of your life. At the time, it was taking me about 12 to 14 minutes to drive to work in the morning, and I was driving to work around 6, 6.30 in the morning. Um, there is nothing good to listen to on the radio at that time. And uh, somebody mentioned, well, why don't you take time to pray for somebody? So I did. I started just spending that time praying. And the Pi Squared card at that point was just a 3 by 5 card that I would just write things to pray for, put it on my dashboard uh, to remind me to pray as I looked at my speed limit or as I looked at uh, my speedometer or whatever it was to remind me to pray. But then I actually started just saying, God, put somebody on my heart that you want me to pray for. And unfortunately, my commute has gotten so minimal currently, um, and I'm finding myself, anytime I'm in the car, it's an opportunity to make a phone call I need to make or do something. And so this last week, as I was thinking through this, this was very convicting to me as well. But um, take a moment right now where you are as we hit five minutes, and I want you to pray and ask God, again, this is only going to take a minute, two minutes max. God, put somebody on my heart right now. Put somebody on my mind right now that you want me to pray for. And that first name that pops up in your head, you're going to pray for them. Then you're going to pick up your cell phone, and you're going to text them. Please don't call them right now. If they don't text, you can call them when you leave. And text them and just say, hey, God put you on my heart, in my mind, and I'm praying for you. Is there anything in particular that I can pray for. So this is going to take two minutes starting right now. Pray, ask God, who can I pray for? Pray for them, shoot them a text letting them know you're praying for them and how you can pray for them. In 12 minutes max, you have written two handwritten notes. You've prayed for somebody and shot them a text, an encouraging text. 12 minutes. What does it look like for us if we just took 15 minutes out of our day to write two notes and text somebody that we're praying for them. How do we, how does that help us live out what it is to be an encouragement to 
a brother or sister in Christ or encourage somebody who might not know the Lord, but you're demonstrating an, an act of love for somebody. Um, this exercise, this last one of praying for some God put somebody on my heart and then shooting him a text. Um, to me, it is one of the most real things of the Holy Spirit that I've ever done on a daily basis. Because, again, for the last almost six years, I haven't had, five years, I haven't had social media, so I don't know what's going on in people's lives. So I'll just text them, hey, praying for you. And they'll be like, oh, you heard about my divorce, or you heard about this, or you heard, no, I did not. Literally, God put you, and a lot of people never believe me. They're like, well, yeah, somebody must have told you. It's like, no, I, I sincerely had no idea. I'm actually in shock. Can I call you tonight and find out what's going on? And I still have people who really believe I am a dirty, dirty liar, but it's just the Holy Spirit. It's this incredible, I, my, my mind has been blown over and over again by, by doing this. So again, 12 minutes. You have two notes and a text message that you're using as an encouragement to somebody else. Practice number four, this is the take-home one, and this is going to lead into communion. But I want to ask you, how many meals do you eat in a week? Or how many meals do you eat in a month? This isn't actually a take-home test. In a month. Uh, in his book, Saturate, by Jeff Vanderstadt, he actually says, what does it look like to tithe our meals back to the Lord? In other words, like we are going to give, if you, on average, say three meals a day, seven days a week, not good at math, however many that is, what does that look like to give back to the Lord? Hey, this, I'm going to take one lunch a week, and at that lunch, I'm going to spend it with somebody who may not know the Lord, just getting to know them better. Uh, it goes along with a pie squared card. Or maybe it's, I'm going to take um, one evening a month, might be all your schedule can handle, and I understand that. And I'm going to do a bonfire, not this time of year, preferably, or I'm going to do something where I'm going to invite somebody else in, but not just there, but because it's very easy to get together. I mean, I think I've gotten together with everybody in this room in one way or another, spent time with them, had a conversation with them. Um, and we can talk, I can talk about a lot of stuff. Sports and you name I mean, and then all of a sudden at the end of the evening, you're leaving and we're driving home, or people are leaving, and I'm like, oh, we never, there was nothing spiritual about that whatsoever, which is fine. It's still a good time getting to know each other and learning about each other. Um, that goes back to the Wayne Mack quote when he says, this necessarily means that we must spend time with other people for the purpose of knowing their needs, their struggles, and how best they may be encouraged. And so that's okay, but at the same time, what does it look like to be much more um, when we're together, what does it look like to ask, hey, how are things really going? Like, how can I be praying for you? And then not just leaving, saying, I'm praying for you, but actually saying, let's, let's just pray together before we leave. Uh, hey, the message, or, or I've been reading this book, or I've been in the Bible, and uh, I'm just kind of like working through some of this. Can you, what do those types of conversations look like as, as we build this encouraging together? And so the question is, is how are you practicing hospitality? And I think we can get into the mindset, myself very guilty of this, of, well, my house is still kind of a wreck. I have two wonderful boys that I love so much, but I have to ask them to pick up. They don't do it naturally. I don't know why. Everybody else's kids seem to. But my house is a mess. 
I remember reading in a book, I can't remember it is, but it says, invite people into the mess. Let them see what normal life is. Let them see your, your struggles and your battles and your lacking patience with your children or, or whatever it is. Invite people in. That's how we get to know each other. Otherwise, we're just putting on a show and it's not sincere. It's not really inviting people into our life. So how are you going to practice hospitality? It's the beginning of August. Uh, what does that look like? Your kids are going back to school soon. Uh, they're so excited about that. Just kidding. But what does it look like to do something with somebody else? Maybe it's just meeting at a park, or, but just once a month. And, it might, and what does it look like to step out of your normal friend circle? And with that, I kind of want to do it. Uh, I want to start going into a time of communion. Because I think in our culture, a lot of that has been lost of the importance of of taking communion together as we're talking about doing meals together. Uh, the, the meal was so important. Um, and again, we've mentioned this before when talking about fasting, that fasting from a meal wasn't just stopping, not stopping at a drive-through. Our meals take three minutes, seven minutes, 13 minutes. But at this time, there was a lot of preparation. They had to start the fire, prepare the fire. Uh, the main course was still breathing when the meal started. And and they had to take care of that problem and prepare it. And it was this long, drawn-out process. And so when we fast, we're like, I'm going to dedicate that 20 minutes to praying. When they fasted, it was, I'm going to dedicate that two and a half, three hours to prayer. Uh, when we would get together for a meal, it was a lot because uh, I was inviting you into my home. And it may have been a long distance traveled to do that and to spend time together and, and to have this type of fellowship together. And this plays very much into communion because that's how the early church was when it started. Obviously, we're, and we'll read here Matthew 26 in a moment, where the, the idea of communion in the Lord's table first comes into place of Jesus, who is becoming the Passover lamb, that his blood would be shed and be covered over people who believe in him so that they will not be affected uh, by the angel of death, that they now have new life, that sin and death were this beaten and destroyed by Jesus and being covered by his blood. Now God sees your righteousness. But also as we go through the church, it was also this time of believers coming together. But I wanted to stop it. We can kind of go through this in every city that we see Paul going through. But I want to use, uh, we just spent some time in Philippians. And Philippi, the city of Philippi is an interesting city. Um, historically, it is documented in what we see in Acts that the Philippians hated Jewish people. Um, that a Jewish man coming into the city like Paul and Silas did, that one of the accusations made against them before they were beaten publicly was that they were Jewish. And that was enough to incite a riot and beat them. Paul finds there's only Jewish women and they're outside the city, meaning that there was not enough, and I think he had to have five Jewish men in the Roman Empire to have a synagogue in the city. So there was not five Jewish men willing to say that they were Jewish that the women had to go out and pray by the river. They didn't have a synagogue. And that is where Paul goes. And he, he talks to Lydia, who is a wealthy woman. Her job was uh, to find linens and purple robes specifically. And so she would have been a very wealthy person. And she says, she comes to know the Lord and she welcomes them into her house. Then Paul and Silas are beaten publicly. They're put in prison. An earthquake happens. They don't escape. And the jailer, who's about to kill himself, they said, hey, we didn't go anywhere. The jailer stopped. That jailer in the Roman Empire, this would have been a battle-hardened individual. Battle-hardened and, and been promoted up through the ranks. 
and it was kind of a jailer, was kind of a retirement gig for the Roman soldier. This guy, the stuff that he's seen and the stuff that he's done in his lifetime, we would not be able to imagine, let alone what he did as a jailer and oversaw. And now he comes to the Lord. So you have Lydia, a wealthy Roman citizen, Jewish. We have no idea if her husband's in the picture, debt, we don't know. You have this Roman jailer. Then you start to have Jewish men and Gentile men. They hate each other's guts. And you start to have wealthy people and slave owners, and you start to have slaves coming through the door. And so that's just one city, and we can keep going through all these different cities. But now, against culture, they're all coming together. The Jewish culture, who at first the men and women would be separated when they'd walk into the synagogue, are now coming in together. And they're being told to treat their wife with love? That's unheard of. And so all of these different things are happening in the church, and the culture around them does not understand it. With the amount of hurt that also would have been done. Again, a Roman jailer. And Paul is there. He was at the hands of that Roman jailer. The slave master and the slave. Slaves were treated a hair above animals. They had no value. They as a whole would have to do whatever the master wanted them to do. So you can't even imagine the abuse that had taken place. And now these households, are, we're told, are coming to know the Lord. And so at one moment, the person that you hate who treats you like an animal, who abuses you in every way, now knows the Lord, and so do you, and you're coming together to church. But not only are you coming to church, but the symbolism of coming and having a meal together, of sharing bread from the same loaf, of sharing a drink from the same, uh, what would have been more than likely wine at that time, the symbolism of all of these groups of people coming together because of the unity that can only be found in Christ, and now they're being told over and over and over again to love each other that you don't treat each other any differently. James keeps going on. Just because somebody comes in, you can tell they're worth money. Don't treat them any better than the poor person. But even the early church in Jerusalem was saying, oh, welcome, please, come in here to the front. Hey, can you move those dirty people out back? we got to make room for the wealthy ones. So there was all sorts of problems that existed in the church, but yet the church would grow and grow. And they started to use those mealtimes in Acts 2.42. They, they, the early disciples, the early people that wanted to lean, they, they didn't have anywhere. They didn't own their own copy of the Scriptures. Scrolls were too expensive. So they'd go back to the synagogues. They'd hear the, what we now know as the Old Testament being read. And then they would go out and they'd have a meal together. And they would devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles and praying together and sharing meals together. And so when we come to this time of communion, it is this time to... One, reflect, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, don't abuse this time. It's not just here for a party, but it is a time to to remember all that Christ has done for you. And so when you take the city of Corinth, which I've uh, said before, but the city of Corinth makes the city of Las Vegas look like a nice little country church. Corinth was a place where anybody could go, slaves could escape and go and become wealthy. It was a place where anything went. It was the, the history there is jaw-dropping. And yet we see this church, and when we look at Corinth and we see all these problems that are existing, it's, of course, these people are crazy. 
And Paul's instructing them, hey, before you take the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourself. Think through, is there stuff that you need to confess? Are there people that have been that have offended you or that you've offended there in your midst. Go and make those things right with each other. The time of the Lord's Supper was a waiting period that before you took part, you would go and say, I have to apologize to a coworker or a family member or a slave or a master. It was this incredible time of people having to learn to do life together with horrific pasts. And so we've lost touch with that, I think, a little bit because we go about our week and we go about our work and we do all these things and can we say that we're really encouraging each other? And please understand, Hope Church, I love you guys so much. For myself, who has been in so many churches and been moved all over the place, I love Hope Church so dearly. As an example, we had a new family that just moved here and they moved in this morning. I personally text, I think, five or six people, everyone that I text, and I said, hey, we have to help some people unload a truck tomorrow. Everyone said, oh, of course, yep, no problem. Not one argument, everyone that I text showed up. I knew that there's stuff going on in their families and their homes and that Saturday isn't a great day for some of our staff members. And they gave it up and they were there. And we unloaded a tractor trailer trailer in about an hour. And I love it. I love serving with them. And I know just who Hope Church is that some of you are going to come up to me after and say, why didn't you tell us I would have been there? But I have a saying, if you want to show someone you really love them, show up when there's a moving truck involved or when there's a hospital involved. Then you will let them know you are truly, sincerely loved. And then later this morning, I text everybody and said, hey, thank you so much for helping this morning. I really appreciate it. And the oh, response is back. I was like, yeah, of course. So we are encouraging each other. And, and I thank the Lord for that every day. Because I've been in a lot of churches where that is not the case. I thank everyone here so much that you love each other, that you care for each other, that you want to be there for each other. So how do we continue to practice this in front of the world? How do, when we come to a time of communion like we're about to do just now, how do we do it knowing that the people in the room, that we are loving them, that we're encouraging them, that we're being there for them, that we're providing this this respite from the world where we can come together. That as we face the spiritual warfare out there, we can come here and share our concerns and our thoughts and what's going on in our life and be there for each other. So I want to move into this time of communion. I'm just going to read a passage. If you've been at Hope Church since before the pandemic, this is how we used to do communion, is I would just share this passage and then we're just asking you to go into a time of prayer. And then we'll go into a time of song. And, and as you feel led, as you take that time and, or as you're singing, uh, you can come forward. And again, as Will said, you can take a cracker and dip it in the, the pomegranate juice. Or there's the uh, much safer germ-free options, which I know I'm not selling it that well. Uh, but the original Lord's Table was this time of being able to um, break bread together, the symbolism of that the symbolism of, of being there for the other person, of, of having that unity of people. And again, I can look out, and, and being a pastor is incredibly difficult. There is no other job that so much of your faith is involved with your job. But man, what an incredible seed I have when I look around and see what God's doing in people's lives or knowing their backgrounds or where they're coming from or where they're going, all of those things. And so it's this wonderful time, a loving 
unifying experience. In Matthew 26, Jesus is sitting with His disciples. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love the part that always stands out to me is that he stopped and he took time to give thanks to God. He was the sacrifice about to be made. And he stopped and he took time to thank God. How often do we stop and take time to thank God for all that he's provided for us? And so that's what I ask is at this time, stop. Take time to thank God. As we are singing, stop, take time to thank God. And then as you are ready, come forward. Again, there's two stations up here and two in the back. And go and take part of the Lord's table together. Right where you are, I'm just going to ask that you go to prayer. And as you are ready, you can come forward.